Welcome to the Nightmare Box Presents The Art of Wargaming. I am Yaga Malark, and Oni was unable to make it in today. He's having some work, uh, real life, good stuff going on. But with me is our special guest, Juniper. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> uh, Juniper is a longtime friend of mine, and I've been wanting to get her on the show. So uh, you guys get to spend uh, the next hour and a half with the two of us, and that I am excited about. So before we get into things, I, I wanted to kind of uh, talk about Juniper a little bit and explain her pedigree, if you will, uh, uh, as, a, as a war gamer, because she's got a fairly long history of this. I, you know, I have entirely too much free time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when did you start doing Bellagarth? Because I know you did, you've been doing that for a long time. Oh, man. You and your husband yeah. founded Stygia. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did. We founded Stygia back in, wow, 2002, maybe? Yeah, it was, it was like the year or the year before I started fighting or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been a day or two. But yeah, so, so she's been fighting for a long time. I mean, uh, you no. you've been a non-com. Mm-hmm. You've, you've been a non-com for a minute, but you've been involved in the community yeah. for a long time. So yeah. you've got a lot. We've, we've got a, a few topics in today's discussions yep. <laughs> that I think she can <laughs> lend a lot of expertise <laughs> to. Um, so, which unit are you primarily associated with? The Urukai. The Urukai. Yep. So apparently we're doing profiles in Urukai because the last guest we had on was Kaji, <laughs> and now we've got you. But I mean, the Urukai is a, a Stygian tradition mm-hmm. at this point, so it's not that surprising we would have so many you find folks on. Right. Um, so long time doing that. Um, you, you do other gaming as well. Uh, we'll, we'll get into the the Warhammer stuff here in mm-hmm. a second, but um, you also do, I think, Call of Duty. Right. I play, I play Call of Duty. Call I mean, Duty. I play Diablo. I play right. tabletop, werewolf, right. online werewolf, tabletop, whatever. So you like exercising that strategy, that strategy stuff all over yes. the place. I dig that. Um, so, so Juniper, um, I I love the fact that you have been so dedicated. You only recently started working with your second army, but for the <laughs> last for for as long as you've been involved in Warhammer, mm-hmm. you have played. Necrons, necrons baby. yeah, just necrons. Yeah, um, I, I, I just started collecting armies. I've got like <laughs> seven at this point, and I know your husband has quite a few. Yeah. and and Alice, everybody else in the club, like we've all got like several armies. Yeah, you guys are you, all loosey goosey. You've just been dedicated. You just have this like, <laughs> I don't know. I appreciate that. It's <laughs> <laughs> I, I like them, so that helps. Word. Uh, well, what do you like about them? What's what is it about the necrons? That I like to you? it's the uniformity. I really dig. It, it's a. Uh, because like with the other armies, there's so many, um, so many name characters, so many different like individual traits and that kind of stuff, and you don't have to worry about that with the Necrons. They're just like this conglomerate of Soulless robots, and, things, yeah, souls, yeah. whatever. Sure, but they, they have, have really souls. cool, they have really cool lore too. Like everything I learn about the Necrons is just so, it's also so. I mean, like they're they're Xenos, but they're so alien, even yeah, for forty k. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, because they they're like one of the few things that just does not interact with the warp. They, yeah. they can do all these cool things purely through the power of science. Yeah, they can break stars just with their their technology, strip molecules. Well, and I, it's beautiful. What I dig is that they just they don't care. Yeah, no, they don't yeah. care. Well, they have no souls. Yeah, Why would they care? Uh, <laughs> kind of prerequisite. Now, that's a, that's a topic for another podcast. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I absolutely love the Necrons, and I love the way you play them. Because every time I play you, I'm expecting them to be this like slow, methodical thing. But you tend to play a lot quicker. A lot I, of tomb blades and, yes, and that sort I of thing. Yes, I do love the tomb blades. I'm not a, a slow player in anything. If it's Call right. of Duty, I'm constantly out in the middle of everything, just getting shot to <laughs> shot to bits. Yeah, because I can't hang back. Well, you believe uh, the best offense is a good offense. Oh yes, oh yes, <laughs> and the, and Necrons play in perfect to that. Especially your Mephred. 
Like you, yes. you, you do play, play a lot of Mefret, mm-hmm. which again, that's that's very brutal. That's very just scorched mm-hmm. earth policy. If yes. You were, if you were to play Chaos, <laughs> I can imagine you'd be a world eater player pretty easily. That sounds about right. <laughs> so this is Juniper, and we're going to be talking about the nine variables today. Before we jump into the chapter, however, I do want to put a large neon light disclaimer on this particular episode. Uh, normally, we have a lot more to work with in the chapters. Uh, if you're reading along at home, you'll notice that this one is very short. You'll also notice that Sun Tzu refers to a couple of things that he doesn't actually explain in the chapter. Um, scholars kind of agree at this point that this chapter is corrupt, which is to say that it, it's not actually taking bribe money, that, that it's missing pieces, <laughs> that there's been, there's been portions of it that have been lost to time. And so what we've done in this episode, which I'm calling a conjecture episode, um, is take the information that is presented and try to extrapolate the things that he refers to in a, in a sensible way. This is not scholastic agreement. This is not something that has been published and discussed by the academic community. This is one military history buff uh, analyzing things from his couch. <laughs> so I'm not trying to decry this analysis as gospel, I, I guess is what I'm saying. I hope, you, I hope you get something from it. I hope it's useful to you. But I just want you to know I'm flying by the seat of my pants on this episode because the, the, the chapter was very short. We got an hour and a half to fill. So um, let's get into it. I'm game. All right. Um, the nine variables. You'll notice, if you've been reading through this chapter, that when they discuss the nine variables, there aren't actually nine variables necessarily listed. The, the, the previous sentences, uh, there's actually five of them. And there's five sentences. Um, most people would say that's incomplete. I looked at this, and I, I, I was kind of looking through it, and I was like, there's actually nine things you can pull from these five sentences that make sense in terms of battlefield variables, things that, that make a difference in the fighting that isn't the actual fighting itself, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and so if you're, I, I apologize if this is slightly different than your translation. Again, ancient Chinese is one of those really difficult languages to translate, uh, literally, I suppose. Right. And, and, and much like a lot of other ancient languages, we've just lost the meaning for some of the words. And so, and again, there's nuances, um, that aren't caught necessarily mm-hmm. in a translation to another language. So if your translation says something slightly different than mine, um, I hope that it's at least similar enough <laughs> that, that the point can kind of be there. Right. I guess, uh, that I'm not talking about the color black and you're talking about the color white. And it's just like, wait a second, why, why, why is he talking about these complete opposites? No. Um, so the first line, if the terrain is unfavorable, do not encamp. There's two things I think that we can pull from this one line. The first one is terrain. It's fairly obvious. This is a, a, a huge variable mm-hmm. uh, just because of the, the difficulties that terrain can present. Um, really hilly terrain or terrain that doesn't have enough roads is really hard to get through, really hard to keep everybody together, um, especially if you're relying on a sort of cohesive infantry formation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, terrain can break that up, move it apart. Um, Rivers are difficult to cross. Marshes have their own hazards. Like there's just there's just so much to terrain. There's actually a whole chapter. I, I, the next chapter is on uh, the on march on the march is the next chapter, mm-hmm. and I think the one after that is on terrain. So we're going to delve really into this one a couple episodes from now. Um, so obviously in the real world, terrain makes a huge difference. For there's, sure. When you're when I was in the army, one of the things we studied ad nauseum was maps. 
how to mm-hmm. read maps, how to how to move around on maps where the best places were, what things were called, so that when people were giving directions, we could understand. Because all this, all these little angles means so much, especially when you have guns involved. <laughs> Taking the, the the ancient world aside, terrain is massive, massively important, mm-hmm. um, obviously to the real world. But in Belagarth, it, it plays a part too. Yeah, for sure. You know, if you're, if you're used to practicing on a soccer field, which has nothing on it, it's not very hilly. It's there's not there's not uneven ground. There's yeah. not trees or anything like that. And then suddenly you go to a woods battle. <laughs> I've seen people run into trees. Yes. Oh yeah, because you're just not you're not used to <laughs> yeah. paying attention to it. You know, yeah. if you're if you're used to fighting around, I know when we first started fighting here in Stygia, um, we your property over by the river. Uh huh. We yeah. go into the woods over there. Yep. So some of my first stuff was doing woods battles and having to be conscious of where trees were because they can take you out. Yes. Uh, the branch pile <laughs> is just as hazardous as a sword is. Yes. Um, so that that field awareness that you have to have fighting in that type of terrain might not come as naturally to somebody else. Again, the uneven terrain, if you're used to fighting on, a, on an incline, if you're used to fighting with rocks, if you're mm-hmm. used to fighting with brush, uh, you're going to have a massive ad- advantage in that variable over somebody right. who doesn't. Um, so in Belagarth, or even like the SCA, Ampgard, Dagger, mm-hmm. or any of your, your fighting communities, this can play a huge part. What is the terrain? What's going on there? And kind of related to this, the second part of this passage, uh, do not encamp, the the location of your camp plays, a, it, it is a variable in of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you sit up next to a marsh and you lose 10, 15% of your people to malaria. Yeah, absolutely. Right? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> or, or whatever other bloodborne disease uh, that the, the mosquitoes are carrying around in that area. Uh, you know, you set up in a place that's too exposed. You have things flying away. You have fires starting because yep. embers are spreading. Um, like, there, and, and the other issue with the encampment especially in the real world, is egress and ingress. If something is easily defensible, if it's mm-hmm. if it's something that's hard to get into, it is likely also hard to get out of. Yes. So that is something important to consider in terms of just maneuver and, and flexibility um, or your ability to be tacked. <laughs> that was, that's the Masada reference. Yes. <laughs> Yes. You raise a great point. You know, Masada, this like nigh impregnable fortress um, during one of the, the Jewish rebellions against the Roman occupation, um, the Romans were like, yeah, it's, it's impregnable. We can't get up there mm-hmm. until we build a massive ramp from the <laughs> valley floor up to this, this hilltop fortress. That's getting it done, man. That's, the Romans were really, really good at one thing, engineering. Yeah, They absolutely. had that down pat. They, there was a lot of other things about their their military structure that I, uh, you'll, you'll hear me come to criticize, but their engineering is, <laughs> right. is without compare. There's no doubt. Um, also you're going to be hearing, uh, two sets of Darth Vader's, both, both Juniper and I vape. So just in case you're, you're wondering about why I'm, I'm double fisting. I'm not, uh, Juniper's here <laughs> helping me out. <laughs> I'm helping you out. <laughs> <laughs> We're just getting moisture in the air. Keep it nice. And <laughs> That's, I'm making it smell nice. I too. We're aerating. Um, so this encampment, uh, again, obviously very important when it comes to real life. Um, a, a bit of a stretch on this one, but in the second Jurassic Park movie, um, the uh, Ludlow is criticized by the game hunter that he has hired along on this expedition to hunt the dinosaurs. And he says, if you want my expertise, you can have it. But if you set up on a game trail, you are a buffet. For sure. Or something like that. I'm I'm misquoting it, which (laughs) is like a trademark for me, misquoting things. Um, 
but uh, that, that's kind of the idea. And it's yeah. the same idea with anything else. If you're, if you're in the wilderness, those are things you need to consider. Um, you need to consider that even for just picking, picking somewhere to like host an event or have practice. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so even like taking it to that, um, to, to like the Bellegarth idea, um, where you're, where you're having practice, that could be in camping because mm-hmm. you're putting stuff down. You're putting, you're, you're, you're making that your, mm-hmm. your camp for the time where to have events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. And then that's once you get to event. the event, where are you camping? You know, you that's might be like, Oh, I want to camp down by the Creek because it's going to be that nice white noise. Well, it's also gonna be a lot colder at night, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't and come mosquitoes. Oh, and mosquitoes is <laughs> a higher and spiders. Water. Also spiders found that up at the last chaos wars I went to. <laughs> I had so many bites on me. I, you need a yurt. I do. I mean, that's, that's, that's true. I also, too. I also need the money for a yurt. Somebody send yeah. me money for a yurt and I will, I'll absolutely have See, a yurt. Malark needs money for a yurt. I'll just guys. live in a yurt. I mean, that'll just be my, my domicile. From they're pretty out. awesome. They are so yeah. awesome. Um, so this encampment thing, huge deal mm-hmm. for Bellegarth, like we've been saying. Um, also, I, 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 <laughs> I'm reminded of, I think it was my second or third chaos wars. Um, we were not mindful of where an underground bee nest was. Oh, no. Do you remember when Slag stepped in the bee nest? No, I don't. Yeah. Maybe I didn't go to that. Oh, one dude, yet. it was so funny. Like, he, I, he and I had just finished talking. We were, we were, we were up late partying that night, and he was going back to his tent, and I was like laying down, falling asleep, and I just heard him like screaming <laughs> across camp. And I figured he had done some Slag, slag thing. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I just kind of went to bed. <laughs> That's <laughs> what so friends are for, man. So I'm a good person. But there are other people around. I could hear other people talking to him. Like, he was alone over there. Um, and I was tired and drunk. So, that, so that, <laughs> But uh, I wake up the next morning, and, like, he's sitting there in camp, and his leg is just, I mean, it's gnarly. Like, it is red and swollen and angry. Oh. And looking at me like it owes me something. Or like, <laughs> I, like, I owed it something. And, and I'm like, what happened, dude? And he, he's like where he set up his tent, there was like an underground beehive or something that he had stepped down into and gotten swarmed. That is so appropriate for him. It is. That absolutely makes sense. He's lit himself on fire or with with a campfire more times than any other person. I know. Most people once and they stay away from the campfire, (laughs) but like he just like walks through, walk through campfires, you know? Oh man. Hmm. No, that was one of the big things with some of the chaos wars is like where you put your camp because how drunk are you going to be that night and how hard is it going to be to find the bathroom? Right. Yeah. Right. How bathrooms? many tiny bridges are you going to have to walk across to get yes. to the bathroom? Yeah. <laughs> how far are you from feast? How far mm-hmm. are you from the field? Yeah. These are... Yeah. <laughs> that makes a huge difference. And made camping spots uh, very valuable. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. like that, uh, that one site that we had for the longest time. Silverbell? Uh, Silverbell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I remember... Like even, even like we were, uh, one time I was going, there was slag again. Oh, we're talking <laughs> about this guy slag. Um, and we were just going at a breakneck pace cause we were supposed to be the vanguard. We were supposed to be the first ones on site right. that particular year so that we could claim the Urukai site that was in the very back yeah. part. Like it was, this, it was really, if, if you hadn't seen it, I'm sorry, we're, we're talking about this fantasy place that only exists in legend now, but it was like <laughs> the perfect Bellegarth site, and it had nestled in the back was the perfect camp area yep. that the Urukai were religious <laughs> about well, acquiring. We did a lot of work to clear that place out, right, too. Right, right. Yeah. had some ownership of the space, mm-hmm. too. Yeah, no mm-hmm. doubt. Um, so, that, so, yeah, where you're camped 
can be a huge deal in, in terms of how pleasant or easy the event mm-hmm. is going to be for you. Uh, in, in same terms with a tournament, I'm sure, um, if you're in a hotel room, are you with other people? Is it noisy? Um, did you bring the uh, just a, sh- snacks? Did yeah. you bring socks? Did you bring underwear? <laughs> like, um, how far is the closest Walmart? <laughs> how far is the closest Walmart? How far are you from the actual? T- like, how far is your hotel room mm-hmm. or your wherever you're staying from where the tournament is taking place? Um, these things are factors, mm-hmm. and, they, and they can be factors in, in you arriving and your readiness uh, to be able to meet battle. Uh, yeah, because the more you're focused on that kind of stuff, the less focused you are on whatever your goal oh, is precisely. for the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all uh, all Monday, like before mm-hmm. before we do these recordings, I'm just sitting here with my books and like any distraction, I'm just kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> like uh, court knows that I'm I'm basically useless on Mondays because <laughs> I'm just trying to like just soak in as much as I can. I, I right. Get, I get very focused. So yeah, that, that focus mm-hmm. is it's very crucial and, and the campaign is a big part of that. Um, comfort and mm-hmm. ease of access yeah, it makes massive difference. Yes, it does. Um, so moving on from that, we uh, the, the second line has three things that I found in here that are actually uh, big variables in in what's going on in a battle, whether it's real or fake. Um, if roads and communications are good, make sure of allies is the line. Um, and in this, I'm, I'm looking at the words roads, communications, and allies as our next three points. So roads kind of extrapolating on that is just logistics in general. Uh, when I was first being trained in the army, I was attached to a transportation company and I got to see firsthand as a, uh, I was a transportation management coordinator. Okay. So I was basically helping plan the convoys, plan convoy oh. routes where everything was going to be situated. Um, that was all part of my training. Okay. So I got to see army logistics firsthand and I came to realize just how important it is. I mean, like it's not something you think about. You think uh, when you're thinking of war, you think of the glorious battles, right? You think of the fighting, you think of these last stands or whatever. But what's most honestly important a lot of the time, it seems is getting the, the persons and getting <laughs> their, their weapons and their food mm-hmm. and the equipment they need to where it needs to be. Yeah. Logistics is a is a massive part of what yeah. I, I came to appreciate it so much more um, when I was uh, working with the transportation corps. So obviously, in a real world situation, this makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. People got to eat, people got to sleep, people got to move from one place to another, and they have to do so in a timely fashion. You don't want things crashing into each other. You don't want traffic jams. So right. planning all that stuff, there is there's a mathematical precision that comes to it. Absolutely, right. uh, even just in the real world, but. Event-wise, Belagarth-wise, it's it's just as real. It's just oh, yeah. as important. And, and Juniper has uh, helped run Stygia before and has run Chaos Wars before. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about event and realm logistics, <laughs> I think I might need to turn over the airspace to you for a minute. <laughs> it is wildly important. Like, even just for something like Chaos Wars, when you're trying to host an event that you want people to go to, it is, it's important to, like doesn't do us any good to have chaos wars in montana we are so far away from other people so yeah we have roads here but they're really far right so you put it somewhere in the middle like idaho and that kind of stuff you're going to see your um the population of people come is going to be much greater than if you put it somewhere up like in montana because the logistics of getting there is so much easier yeah so i mean it's great for me i'm right here but everybody else it sucks it's like a 16 hour drive you know mountains yeah yeah (laughs) narrow roads Uh, along rivers that don't have proper (laughs) guardrails 
It's or fun. guardrails at all. Or guardrails at all, yeah. You know. It's Montana. You kind of take your chances. Uh-uh. But yeah, that's, that is was wildly important. And then it was other things like, you know, are there places close enough that can they can have porta potties and service them in a reasonable amount of time? Are there places close enough that we can get food? Booze. Yeah, yeah. booze. Yeah, you're not kidding either. <laughs> uh, Haley, Idaho, where we used to have that chaos mm-hmm. wars at Monty Bell Ranch, um, they loved us. They loved mm-hmm. us coming in because I think we like tripled their GDP. I think so. Every yeah. time we came in, yeah. like their liquor stores and their hardware stores, camping mm-hmm. stores, all their oh, grocery the stores place? would just stock up. Uh, what's the the restaurant place there? Snow, Snow Bunny. Bunnies. Yeah. Yes, that place. Yeah, Snow Bunnies. They loved us. Yes. Yeah, and they call in all their, like, I heard a story, I don't know if whether it was true or not, but it was a really cool story to hear that, like, before Chaos Wars would happen, that they would call, like, all their relatives in and be like, we need you to come and work <laughs> this week because these nerds mm-hmm. work up an appetite. One, and those of us who were helping to organize the event, we would call the the grocery stores and stuff like that and let them know in advance that we were going to be there for this week. So, right. so maybe have up. more ice, maybe have more logistics. Liquor. Yeah. More yeah. Logistics, yeah. logistics is wild. And, and most people wouldn't even know that if you've been attending chaos wars all that mm-hmm. time and you weren't a part of the planning committee, you just show yeah. up and you're like, Oh cool. They've got extra stuff. You don't yeah. know. You don't know the planning that went into that, but yeah. that was absolutely necessary. Yes. For it really is enough food. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even at the event itself, the logistics of, of who's doing what, where, um, Who's running the field? Mm-hmm. Who's running the tournaments? Who's teaching classes? Who's doing weapons check? Who like? There's yep. so many different logistical things going on. Yeah, making sure stuff doesn't stuff is going to overlap, but you have to pick and choose. You know which things are okay to overlap, and that, right. and then even just down to the the nitty gritty details of camping. Who needs electricity for their CPAP machines and and that kind of stuff? You know, was it's it's really interesting to run a, a large event like that because you. As a regular attendee, you do like underappreciate the amount of planning that that has to go into something like that. It takes oh, yeah. a lot more. That was a very stressful year for me. <laughs> this is part of the reason why I suggest that everybody should volunteer mm-hmm. for at least an hour a day at every event they go to. If everybody did that little amount, your event coordinators would sleep so much easier mm-hmm. at night because many hands make light labor, and there's so many different things going on that you could be a part of. Yeah. You know, you're not, if you're not into weapons check, you know, you don't like being hit. That's cool. Yeah. You could do troll. Uh, you don't, you don't like talking to people. I, I don't, I wouldn't be very good at troll because I mean, I'm good at talking to my friends. I like having people on the show, mm-hmm. but like after about 15 minutes of talking to people, I don't know. I'm bored. <laughs> done for. And, I, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm done. Um, I want to go read a book or something. Uh, so that, that's not where I want to be. But when I was, when I, when I am able to volunteer, I do weapons check. Right. Cause that's, that's where, what I can that's do. That's one of the ones in. I've never done is weapons check. Weapons check and heralding. The two mm-hmm. things I like to do because they're the two things that I feel qualified for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I really recommend that if there's something that people are are interested in and you're scared to run something like that, volunteer for it anyways. Oh yeah, because the yeah. people who've done it before will will help you figure out how to do it. Oh you sure, know? Yeah, yeah. Especially if your event coordinators are worth, worth their salt, they mm-hmm. want you to be there, so they're going to show you how to do a yes. good job. They want you Absolutely. to do a good job. Um, yeah. So. The, the, these logistics, these logistics that people don't even think of. Mm-hmm. Again, when people are thinking about war, uh, you're not thinking of the supply caravan or, right. or the cooks, but they're just as important as the bullets. Yeah, even something as small as like the mail. Oh yeah, yeah, that oh, was yeah. something that was was morale boosting. Well, that that comes in, I think, in the next section. Oh, oh am I jumping ahead? You're jumping ahead a little bit. <laughs> you're preempting, but that's okay. I like your enthusiasm. Um, but yeah, so even on a personal level, when you're looking at an event, how are you personally getting there? How are you getting your gear mm-hmm. there? How are you getting your food there? Are you bringing your own food or are you going to a kitchen? How is the kitchen doing its thing? Um, 
what other things do you need? What medications do you need to be there? Like these are the logistics are a huge variable. Mm-hmm. And if they're not like I've had people who have had their events ruined because of bad logistics, yes. because they couldn't get a, a ride figured out or they couldn't like food figured out or, <laughs> or even a sleeping place or something mm-hmm. like that. Like if you don't have these things figured out ahead of time, you're going to have a bad time. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it, it's just the same for, for Warhammer as well. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're hitting people with a stick or moving plastic figures around on a board. You're still expending calories. You're still in need of water. You're still in need of good rest. You're mm-hmm. still in need of getting from place to place. So logistics are just... And, and with Warhammer, you've got the added complication of having this well-painted, hopefully, well-based, <laughs> hopefully, uh, beloved army that you're transporting from place to place, hoping not to break it. And they can be bulky. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I sometimes when I'm carrying around, especially like a Astra Militarum army, yeah. it's a lot of boxes to worry about. Yeah. I managed to drop on, like, every... My, my Tomb Blades. There's, it's this... What is it? It's a group of nine that I play with, and I mm-hmm. think three of them have bases. Because I've Dropped broken them. all of them. Right? Yes. So the log- just the, those logistics, getting your pieces mm-hmm. from place to place without getting them broken. or Like, if you look at my AdMech pieces, um, especially the ones I posted on the Instagram a little while ago... The discerning AdMech players might notice a servo arm missing from one of my tech priests um, and several antennae missing from Skitari. And, and that's because they're they're delicate. Yeah. You know, it just takes one little drop, one little mispack, and, mm-hmm. and the model's been broken. And we love the models. We, we think they're gorgeous. We love them for their, for their frailty because it also is what makes them beautiful, mm-hmm. like that detail. But... That's, that's again, another added complication. I can throw a bag of weapons wherever I really right. want to, and as long as I'm not putting any major pressure points on them, they're going to be fine. Yeah. They're covered in foam, but <laughs> an army is a different thing. An army is also a lot more expensive, a lot more that is money fair. per square inch. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yes, they very much are. So that logistics is huge, too. But mm-hmm. like you were saying before, with the mail, the next point I want to come to, uh, the, the fourth of our nine variables, would be communication. Mm. Uh, and and what you're talking about is communication of the people with home, mm-hmm. which is like it's good for morale, right. absolutely. But also communication between the armies. Mm-hmm. Um, are are your different divisions, platoons, even squads able right. to communicate effectively with one another with what tools are available? That's that's massive, especially if you're relying on other people. Communication is absolutely key. Yes. Um, so so in real life, this is accomplished at least in the ancient world. You'd have gongs or drums or horns mm-hmm. or that would play out different melodies or rhythms to signify what should be being right. done. There were flags uh, going one way or another to show rallying points or to show uh, which direction <laughs> you should yeah. be moving. Um, just all these different command and control ideas to to increase communication between the divisions and between the general and their army. That's one of the things I'm always I've always been like because kind of, you watch the movies mm-hmm. and it's one guy who's standing there screaming commands on the battlefield and you're like how does everybody hear that? And so I don't really have a, a super great understanding of how they gave those commands in the middle of battle. Well, it would have been given to an adjunct who would have given them to the signal corps and the signal corps would have been able to say okay. Drums over there, you need right. to beat out this. Horns over there, play this. And so, and there also have been messengers running from place to place. Trying God, how to, would you hear that in the middle of the chaos? Yeah. Uh, hopefully your gong player is very loud. <laughs> Apparently they're, they're into it. Like uh, the Zebor triangle, <laughs> we, need more, we need more gong, you know. More like, cowbell. <laughs> that's what it was, not triangle. <laughs> Malark misquotes again. <laughs> or on a, on a smaller scale, mm-hmm. um, for instance, on a Belagarth field, 
um, the the Urukai have an interest because you guys have, especially when you were in the in the process of running things, the Urukai mm-hmm. were at their height uh, and they had a lot of numbers. And yes. so they ran the uh, Kaji and I talked about this last episode, the shield wall. Um, but the way that the Urukai would maneuver this massive and what could be an ungainly machine mm-hmm. is that whoever was driving the bus or, or calling out the commands that your field commander, mm-hmm. which you call a, I do a, sure, thing, a, a, thing, thing. a, a person yeah. who commands on the field, um, <laughs> would, would be calling out and, uh, when they would say something, Everybody else would echo it mm-hmm. was the idea. And so when you heard a command being called out, the, your job is to scream it out as loud as you can yes. so that everybody down the line can hear it as well. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's a good way of getting around, especially because the Urukai, we're not talking like thousands upon thousands upon thousands right. of members. Um, but it's a good way of managing the numbers that you guys had on the field. Mm-hmm. But even then, it was really easy to get lost in like 30 people. Oh, sure. Know, sure. Especially if somebody decided to call something out that was contradictory. <laughs> Yeah, which, yeah, we nipped that in the bud pretty quick. Mm. And then we also went into, um, for a while, we were trying to come up with words that weren't necessarily in English. So if we were trying to go right, you know, all the other units wouldn't hear that we were trying to go right. Right. Yeah. There was also the year that we were the Orca Kai. The Orca Kai. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> we were on the field and, and making whale noises. It was, I don't even remember how it got started. It was... It was amazing and terrible. <laughs> I think I must have missed that because it was that we were still at Silverbell. Still at and Silver Bell. and there was it was a conversation with Sleuth, I remember. That's I don't know, something about whales and everybody just started making whale noises and then we were out on the field and we just all started making whale noises and it just threw everybody off. Like the whole field just kinda of stood there for a second and was like, What is going on? <laughs> I must not have been there. Oh, for that, it was amazing. That particular yeah, event. the Orca Kai. The Orca Kai. Because <laughs> I remember, like, Cedric wills it and all that. It was after uh, that. It was after that, okay. Yeah, it was after Team Red Rocket, yeah. <laughs> I think also my tendency to just kind of sit and camp and then fight and then sit and camp and then fight, I, I miss out on some of these things. You could I, not have missed, I missed like, it. 40 okay. Urukai uh, mooing, like, I what... Mooing like whales? What, what? Um, but, it was not singing. Brain? Brain like? I'm going to go with mooing. mooing. It was, well, a bray is a moo. It's just a fancier way of saying it, I think. And that's a donkey's. Donkey's bray. Yeah. They? That's right. I don't whales, know why farm animals would have had, Well, I mean, whales aren't farm animals, but, you know. I don't know what they're... <laughs> it's whale song. Yeah, we were not singing in no, any singing. form that you want to equate to music at all. But it was amazing. So you're, you're dory-speaking... Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Is that way? I, I I I think Angus started doing that at one point, and I remember being like, "Why is he doing that? It's effective, <laughs> but like it's interesting." So maybe he picked it up there. And that could like, be. Or maybe he just realized it was an effective strategy. I don't. It's know. also Angus, so it's kind of up in it's the also air. Angus. <laughs> There's a reason he's an orc player. He's very well suited <laughs> oh to my orcs. Gosh, uh, yeah. If you're listening, Angus, I would I would love to play you again. Play me. <laughs> um, so yeah, this this idea of communication when in Bellagarth is absolutely important. Communicating with, with, your, with your teammates on the field is one of the biggest challenges for any unit, any especially any team. If you're on uh-huh. a team of a bunch of people who are from a bunch of different places, it can be really hard to do anything complicated. Remember we've said, keep it simple, stupid. The communication, that's, that's absolutely key. As uh-huh. few words as need to be spoken for an understanding to be had is absolutely key. Or if you can speak none... Uh, like I said, the Dark Angels were relatively small and were a relatively tight-knit group. Mm-hmm. And so our communication, like when I was at 
Aukfest this last time around, um, I don't remember saying much to my sisters on the field because it was myself and Cutter and, oh gosh, I'm blanking on her name. Oh, shame oh, on you. I know, shame on me. <laughs> well, because I'm, I'm seeing... I've seen her name on Facebook, and I know that's not her fighting name. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, we were on the field, and like we would do like a brief discussion beforehand mm-hmm. of just like where we wanted to be. But then after that, we were just reading each other's body language mm-hmm. and moving in where we knew we were needed. Because again, Dark Angel is very typecast, and I think part of the reason we're selected is because we're going to fit into this right. mold that's already there. Um, but it was nice. It was nice just to have that unspoken communication. But in a, that's that was the three of us operating on a team of strangers, mm-hmm. just communicating with one another. If you're trying to keep group, a group of 40 together, right. it's a little bit different yeah. with the rules. Well, but you also have like groups or um, teams like, uh, like Navy SEALs and stuff like that that have to work in, in like silence. Right. And all the, the hand signals and yep. stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. Battle sign mm-hmm. is something huge. Uh, 40K players are familiar with that with the Sisters of Silence. Um, oh. Pariahs who have taken a, a vow of silence and they communicate purely in, in a, a battle cant, like a sign language. Really? Yeah, they're really cool. You should well, read about them. They're, they're neat. Sisters of Silence would turn me off right right there. Really? Do I strike you as a silent you, I mean, you, No, but I mean, these are not, these are not like... Uh, right. <laughs> dainty little wilting flowers either. They come with bolter, flamer, and blade to... Uh, because they're pariahs. Do you know what a pariah is? Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're the entire, basically, unit <laughs> right. comprised of psychic killer... Or psych, psycho killers. Oh, um, yeah. They're cool. They're very cool. I like, the, I like them in the stories that I've read. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever, whatever needs to happen for this communication to take place, not just between individuals... Not just between squads, not just between the general and the army, not just between the, the different segments of the army, but, but all of it. Mm-hmm. All of it is in this communications idea. It's a little bit less important, I think, in 40K because your units respond exactly how you right. move Unless you're them playing a to team do so. Game. Unless you're playing a team game, in which case you need to be communicating with, mm-hmm. your, with your teammate on what you should be doing. Yeah. Or there's also team tournaments where people will go in and fill certain roles and still just do one-on-ones, but it'll be within the, 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 the team is judged together. Oh, really? So you want to make sure that you've got certain types of armies in there so you, like, huh. you have a diverse group of players. So that Because the way I was hearing it, at least the one that I was, I was learning about, was that the team captains get together and basically decide the matches. Okay. And so if you've got all the same type of army, there's going to be certain matchups that aren't going to be favorable. Right. But if you bring an Elder Flyer list, a Night Spam, right. and, I don't know, a Death Guard, <laughs> a Typhus-centered list, you've got a lot <laughs> of different options there uh, that your team captain can kind of slot mm-hmm. you in. So this communication beforehand, practice and communication right. these things, absolutely key. For absolutely sure. Absolutely important. Um yeah, mm-hmm. and then uh, and, and also communication with your opponent. That's another mm-hmm. thing that I don't think that we we touched on uh, in, in Belagarth or in any sort of um, honor based martial art type thing where you're where you're, where you're fighting like that. You need to be communicating with yeah. your opponent as well, uh, because if somebody throws a shot and catches the fabric of the sleeve near your elbow, mm-hmm. but catches it in such a way that they think they got your elbow, and you don't say anything, you just keep fighting. That person is going to think of you as a cheater. Yeah. They might report you to the heralds as a cheater when really you weren't. So right. if you just told them garb or or light or whatever the terminology might be where you're from to signify that the shot wasn't good and that that's the reason you're not mm-hmm. taking it, that is a huge weight off of people. Now, don't overuse it. Again, if somebody gets you square in the back and you're like, light, well, <laughs> I don't want to play with you because you're mean. <laughs> 
Um, but for everybody else, I, like I, I've, there were, there's two people that I think do it amazingly, and they they got me on the path to doing it this way too, where they call every single shot, right. even if it's not light. They'll still say arm or shield or even sword. And this is the uh, Hobbit and Achilles. Okay. Um, I noticed them doing it at a Chaos Wars years ago, and I was like, that is brilliant. Right. Because now every, like, even if it's, like, obvious, it's, like, on the sword. But if, you've gotten, if you're in the habit of calling absolutely becomes everything. Becomes second nature, yeah. Becomes second nature, and, and you're able to communicate very effectively with your opponent. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think anybody has ever accused those two of cheating. Right. At least not not the time that I've been active. They they. They're upstanding fighters, mm-hmm. and, and part of that reason is because of good communication. Yeah. There's no misunderstandings between honorable opponents. Right. Absolutely. And then good communication with your heralds, making sure that they know what's going on. Archers need to be communicating with their teams, like all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's the same thing in 40K. Like, if I'm just sitting there rolling dice behind a, uh, a screen, and then I'm like, okay, roll, 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 right. roll, <laughs> You got three hits. Or take three states. Right. That's not good communication. I'm not telling you what what modifiers I'm mm-hmm. using. I'm not telling you uh, what numbers I'm looking for. I'm not even telling you what numbers I have. Right. I'm not. So so even if you're not cheating, that can lead it can to a. Feel, it can feel like yeah. cheating. It mm-hmm. can feel like you're being deceptive for no yes. reason. So clearly communicating what what number of dice you're rolling, mm-hmm. what number you're looking for on those dice, what the results were, letting your opponent see all that before you move on to the next thing. Besides, it's, is, it's always kind of awesome to be like, I'm going to roll thirty. Dice of damage at you, right? And it's also—I mean, I, I like it in the Black Lotus sector because the majority, like all of our games, even the ones done for tournament, mm-hmm. are just fun games. Yeah, we're just—we're just getting together. We're a group of pals who enjoys playing Warhammer together, mm. and so there's always this this gambler's thrill of being like, "Will I make the roll?" <laughs> but it's always more fun when somebody's watching. I mean, yes. like if you're watching somebody do craps at Vegas, it's usually with a bunch of people around them yeah. that are like cheering and like uh, participating in that suspense. I love the crest look on someone's face when I'm rolling test the weapons and I'm like look at all my sixes <laughs> it's just so much more satisfying it really is to be like, I if you cry it. a little bit that yeah. would help right yeah I'll try to tomorrow <laughs> when, you, when you're testing the bejesus I will try to roll sixes I'll be telling you guys next week how bad Juniper kicked my butt in this game <laughs> hopefully um, hopefully so yeah this, this communication between opponents uh, because again you're not actively trying to deceive them as to the rules of the game um, and, and, and letting, making sure they know what faction you're playing of the army so if you're playing Necrons making sure they know what you're playing Mefret what that means mm-hmm. um, you know you're playing Al- Altioc you need to let your, your opponent know that's what that means that's why we do that the intro in the beginning of the game mm-hmm. yeah that's, that's that's all part of this good communication mm-hmm. uh, so there's no, none of these misunderstandings that make the feel bads and then the feel bads make a bad game and uh, that's what nobody wants. We're, we're doing this to have fun. We're no, doing this I'm to relax. Way too lazy to like table flip. So I'd appreciate if you guys would just not upset me. <laughs> but you're not practicing with a tire in your backyard. Where is your CrossFit? Do you even lift, bro? Do yeah, you no. lift? No, I don't. Dost thou even lift, brethren? <laughs> Unnecessary. <laughs> So again, yeah, this communication and in wargaming is especially important here because again, this is going to make sure that you're thought of as a good opponent. You're going to get invited back. Your 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 opponents are going to speak well of you. Mm-hmm. These are all good things. Uh, honor itself in this regard is its own reward. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's communication. Uh, and and then the, the third one that I pulled out of this this particular sentence was that last word, allies. <laughs> allies are a huge. Variable as uh, we're, we're, a little bit later, we're going to talk about the Battle of Chancellorsville. So anybody who already knows, you know why <laughs> this is going to be kind of the focus, this allies idea. But 
your allies being where you need them to be when they need to be there, doing what they're supposed to do, is a huge variable. Because there's nothing that says that they actually will. You could be yeah. depending on someone to be backing you up, and then they don't. <laughs> or you could be depending on an archer to be giving you suppressing fire, but they don't. Right. Um, so this 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 communication or this this allies is its own thing altogether because humans are humans and they're not altogether predictable. Somebody might be really reliable 99% of the time and then one time out of 100 they don't show up where they're supposed to be and if that one time out of 100 was the clutch moment that they were supposed to be there <laughs> that's a big deal. Um, people can also turn sides. I remember um, we're talking about a lot of Urukai history I guess this episode of the last but uh, my very first Chaos Wars, and obviously I bear no ill will toward the Gelf at all, because again, these are foam games, and this was ancient history at this point. Ooh, could yeah, you that hear that? Loud, yeah. Ooh, that was my back, y'all. Um, <laughs> Cassius, come on now. Um, but I remember I was I was stumbling around in a in a state of intoxication, and I was on my way back to Urukai camp, and I saw a large gathering out in the field, like the fighting field. It was late at night, and so I was like, what? Is going on over here? Perhaps some fun shenanigans to join in on. Perhaps they have more boosts. Shenanigans and chaos? Never. <laughs> um, so I come wandering over, and I get a little closer, and they're like, "Hey, it's a secret meeting. Go away." Uh-huh. Oh, fine. Okay, whatever. You know. So I <laughs> pout off into the darkness, and but as I'm moving away, I realize that I had just encountered a, uh, the the Gelf, like the larger portion mm-hmm. of the Gelf, and what I heard them whisper was, "Whatever happens tomorrow." The Urukai won't take it. And that Chaos Wars was one of the first events. That the, like, the Urukai were on the Ascendance at that point. Mm-hmm. And we were actually, it was Chaos 9, I think. And, and they were posed to actually win. And they had allied with the Gelf and other kind of Western powers to make sure that Numenor and some of the Eastern guys who had come right. weren't going to do it. But because the Urukai were so up and coming, they weren't, I, I think it was a an old blood politics right. game uh, that they wanted to make sure that the, the stayed in the West, but that these uh, upstarts <laughs> didn't walk away with it. Mm-hmm. Now I was a prospect for the Urukai at this time. Mm-hmm. I think I had actually been recruited earlier that week. And so I hustle on back to camp, uh, probably stumble is more, <laughs> more apt description um, and uh, report to them that the Gelf are planning on betraying us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next day I remember that every single fight in the, in the unit battles, we just, cause we knew at that point, we knew that basically the West had declared, uh, had betrayed us. Right. We knew that, uh, that they were basically going to be using us to beat Easterners. Right. And then just kill us. Uh, it was kind of the plan. <laughs> so we decided to upset that and we just charged the Gelf, like every single unit battle for the rest of the event. And, it, and I think Numenor walked away with it that, that year. Like, I think I'm pretty sure the banner went East because that of Western be. infighting. <laughs> but we, but, but in that particular case, we were being betrayed by our allies, right? Right. We could not be sure of them in that case. And again, obviously I, I, I had thumbs on here the other day. I bear no ill will toward the Gelf. You guys are great. No, that's and part of the fun of it. Yeah. I've absolutely maneuvered against people before, so I am not judging you at all. <laughs> But just to say that the ploy was found out and, and it kind of made that Western alliance break apart. And I think for years after that, the West kind of distrusted one another. Like we were all very <laughs> loath to work with other Western groups um, as a result of that. But again, that's just, 
That's just politics. That's the spice of Belgarth. That is sort of the spice of Belgarth. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's you're never quite sure. So so he actually has some um, uh, pointers in this chapter for how to deal with your alias. He says, "Harry the princes and barons, and give them." Um, basically reasons to do what you want. Give them hope that you're going to reward them for what they're doing. Because if there's, if there's no stick, why does the donkey walk? Right. It, it doesn't. So if you want people to do what you, what you want them to do, uh, you need to give them a reason yeah. to do it. Um, and again, this, I, I don't, I'm not sure how much explanation is necessarily needed on this one because it just, once you think about it, it makes sense. I think even almost ties into like people who own the event sites. Yeah, that too. They, they that have too. to be on your side. And if they're not, you're, you're not coming back. Oh, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. Yeah. But like there was that one year that we couldn't do War of the Gate anymore because of, uh, there was that noise complaint issue yeah. out there, which was like a massive misunderstanding. We had a lot of noise complaints. <laughs> well, we're a noisy group. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you agree to host us and you're like, wait a second, they have these bonfires at night and sound <laughs> quite loud. Well, yes, we're drinking because this is <laughs> yes. Viking heaven for a week. We're doing yes. the Valhalla thing. Party all night, you know. Yeah. Fight all day. Drums till dawn, baby. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. So, uh don't host a bell event unless you're <laughs> prepared. Um, so yeah, that's a good point. Like having yeah. having the site owners or having the tournament, um, the people who are running the tournament for a Belgarth mm-hmm. or for a, for a Warhammer 40k <clears> thing, <throat> you absolutely yeah. want them to be allies. Yeah. You definitely want to be on good terms with people because you want to keep being invited back. You yeah. want to do your thing. I mean, gosh, we've even had had cops roll through events and stuff like that, and, right. and yeah, make it nice with them and making sure that oh, they're. Yeah cool with what's going on and yeah that, that's all super important ally yeah i actually i think i saw you doing that one year at, at chaos wars there was a i, I kind of approached because i was curious i saw mm-hmm. you talking to a cop on the side of the field and of course in my mind i'm like "Ooh, what happened who's in trouble <laughs> you know who oh, got hurt like all those kind of so things so interested he wanted to play so oh, yeah as i get closer i, I yeah. just hear you like fervently explaining the rules and he's just not uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah uh-huh. like he's just really into it i'm like we're about to recruit a man in uniform I'm okay with it. Right? <laughs> he was so jacked about it. It was, I mean, you could tell it was very, one of the very first times he had ever heard about anything like this. And it is, it is super important to not only have the, <clears throat> the people who own the event site, but also local things like the cops and that kind of stuff, but the community in general behind you, because if they think you're Satan worshipers and you know, that Druggies kind of, user yeah, that kind of stuff, be, you're yeah. never going to, you're not going to recruit in the same manner as, as if we're, as you will when you're a group that does, you know, services for the community and right. food drives and that kind of stuff too, that's or blood drives like we did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Being being allies to the community—that's mm-hmm. that's a direction I didn't even think of taking. This is why I have somebody else on the show. You guys are so much smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> Take it also literal. You got that recorded, right? <laughs> I do, I do. That, that's a confession on tape, admissible in a court of law. So, um, yeah, there you have it. So after. Allies. After we after that uh, after that line, we move to the next line, and the the whole line is "Do not linger on difficult ground." Uh, uh, from this, I, I think we can discern favorable deployment as as a as one of these nine variables. So the sixth one would be favorable deployment, mm-hmm. and this is is just as important in everything as everything. And, and this difficult ground idea, difficult ground is different for different units. Yes. Um, somebody who is accustomed to rocky terrain 
will not find rocky terrain to be difficult ground. They are used to fighting on it. They're an army who are, who are accustomed to moving mm-hmm. through that. Somebody who is not accustomed to rocky terrain will find that to be difficult ground. Uh, in the same fashion, if you're not used to fighting in a line and uh, a unit o- or, or a field only lends itself toward uh, close quarters line fighting, you're going to find that ground to be very difficult yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, chariots have a hard time with bogs and marshes. <laughs> uh, foot soldiers, not as much. They can. I mean, you can mm-hmm. still sink in a bog or a marsh just as a person. But uh, chariots definitely have a problem with that. We learned at Ajin Court that horses also have a problem sometimes mm-hmm. with the, the muddiness. Um, I think that's difficult ground for everybody, though. Uh, I, I'm having trouble picturing somebody who's like, oh, yay, mud. Um, <laughs> I mean, elephants might be okay. Hannibal would be fine. Maybe. maybe. If he could make it over the Alps. You know, well, he can do whatever he wants. <laughs> that's true. Um, so this idea of difficult ground, uh, you, you have to be thinking about the other things as well. Uh, the logistics, difficult ground... That makes all that much more difficult, makes um, communication more difficult. Mm-hmm. So this favorable deployment, being being in an area for the battle that is favorable, again, it's it's a it's subjective. What's going to be difficult ground for me isn't going to be difficult ground for right. you. If I'm playing my orcs and you're playing your necrons and we have a wide open field with very little terrain, that's difficult ground for me. Yeah, I'm super okay with that. But you're, you're, you're pleased. You would not call that difficult no. at all. Like um, beaches of Normandy, baby. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just have at it, boys. Target practice. <laughs> um, so, again, it's, it's going to go back and forth. Uh, de- depending on who you are, what you like, what you're looking for, uh, what's difficult is going to be, like I said, subjective. So mm-hmm. with Belagarth, this comes down to, uh, and again, this favorable deployment is also, are you uphill or are you downhill? Mm-hmm. Is the sun in your eyes? Um, which was, I, I, I just sounded smart there. That was the fact that that was something that Juniper <laughs> brought up earlier when we were talking about this. Um, so th- th- these these are all things that go into it. You know, again, you wouldn't necessarily think, okay, sun in my eyes, how much important is that? That can be really important. It's really important. You know, if it's five o'clock and, mm-hmm. uh, and you're, you're just staring directly into the sun, I've been clocked by arrows because yeah. I couldn't see them, you know. I definitely. will absolutely try and get my opponent... Face in the sun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. That's, that's uh, Musashi definitely recommends that. You know, mm-hmm. The Book of Five Rings. It's, yeah. Uh, it's favorable. Again, <laughs> you're always looking for that favorable mm-hmm. footing. Um, so, again, and so for Belagarth, that's a matter of what side of the field are you on? Um, what's, the, what's the shape of the field? What's the elevation in the different parts of the field? What's even on the field? I know there's been some fields that I've been on where, like, the whole, like, left half of it or whatever will have gotten just completely messed up the mm-hmm. night before because people were night fighting and it was raining. Yep. So, like, half the field is a mire while the other half of the field is just fine. So, depending on where you're deployed near that mire yeah. is going to make a huge difference as to how many headshots you take. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Or, or like we were saying with 40k, um, if you're on a, a side that has a lot of terrain and you're a melee army, you're going to just be really mm-hmm. happy about that. Whereas if you're a shooty army, you're going to be like, okay, I got to figure out my lanes right. here. It's going to be a little bit more difficult trying to get your things to perform the way that you need them to. Um, so yeah, that's that's absolutely a factor. I think absolutely one yeah, of these, these variables. Huge. Yeah. Um, uh, and the next one I think is just as important. Um, because this next line also just lends us one, and it says, if surrounded, find a way out by stratagem. Uh, I think the essence of this line is that that word stratagem. Who has the best experience, the best knowledge of strategy, the best 
like I said, experience in using mm-hmm. that strategy in a practical way because things you learn in books don't necessarily apply to real life. I know I talk about this a lot. The first six years I did Bellagarth, I wasn't very good at it because I read books, gosh darn it, and I knew much better <laughs> than the people who actually, you know, were good at fighting. Right. Absolutely, I knew better. I didn't, by the way. Um, and, and, and after about year six, I was like, you know, I need to temper this with practical learning <laughs> as well. So practical knowledge, practical application is, is very important mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and plays a huge part. It's a huge variable in this. Uh, and again, when you're, when you're looking at actual war, somebody who has led an army in combat, somebody who has commanded and knows the rigors and knows the stresses and knows the, the things to do and not to do, um, they're going to be a lot better off than some greenhorn right. fresh out of academy who doesn't. Who thinks they do. <laughs> who yeah. thinks they know. But, but again, and again, that's not saying that somebody can't be good. You've got those mm-hmm. rare exceptions in history like Alexander who he just kind of right. was good at it. Now, he also had one of the best armies in the world at the time, courtesy of Daddy. That may help. <laughs> it definitely helps. But he also was a very capable commander. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometimes lightning strikes and you happen to find somebody who's good at what they do. Uh, Colonel Chamberlain was one of those unexpected ones in the Civil War. He was a, a teacher from Maine. He was a professor, like a, um, and a, yeah. and, but he, when the civil war broke out, he signed up because he thought it was his patriotic duty. turns out he had a knack for leading people huh. in battle. And, really? and he was one of the huge reasons that the battle of Gettysburg, uh, was, was a union victory. Huh. I did not know that. Yeah. So sometimes you do find capable commanders in the most unlikely places, right. but nine times out of 10 <clears throat> experience is a good thing. Not to say that somebody who is more experienced should become prideful or develop hubris about that Mm -hmm. because as we've said before noob foo is a thing and it it needs to be taken into consideration (laughs) what we're saying by noob foo is somebody who doesn't necessarily know how to throw shots is going to throw shots that you don't necessarily expect yes yeah they're unpredictable right so always remaining prepared always and so again this this idea of experience or knowledge it is not the most important of the nine variables it is very important mm-hmm. but it is also important not to think that it is more important than it is right uh, I, as convoluted <laughs> as that sentence was <laughs> so yeah I, I don't think there's much more to be said on the matter of experience because again that's that's kind of self-explanatory mm-hmm. so uh, the next line we get the last two of these nine variables that I have extracted <laughs> from this passage. Um, and this, this line is in a life or death situation, fight to the death. So the two, the two, uh, variables I pulled out of here, uh, well, the first one is in this word situation. So this, the type of encounter, this is something that I've touched on a little bit before in the idea of terrain or favorable deployment, but the, the type of encounter in that moment is a huge variable. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're an army that is I- equipped for close quarters fighting, you want to be constantly seeking that, that encounter, that type of yes. encounter. Anything short of that, it doesn't really work because that's where you work the best. And so, again, this this variable of it, does the encounter type, the fighting that is taking place currently, benefit what your army is set up to do? I've, I've noticed that in the way that your guys have chased my Necrons. Yeah. Across the field, and I'm like, get away from me! Yeah, I, I don't like anybody being nearby my my gun line when I'm playing Admech because yeah. I'm like, no, uh, Dune crawlers are not designed for melee fighting. <laughs> no, guys are in my personal bubble. I'd really like to shoot you. Please back away. 
<laughs> so here comes some punchy Castellan robots with some incending carbines. I do not like. You won't, you won't have to see them tomorrow. I'm, I'm using demons tomorrow. I don't know if that makes me feel better. <laughs> it's my Zneech demons. It'll be fun. Change fire for days. Oh, oh man. Um, yeah, I also have a Zneech. Like I said, I, I play seven armies. I'm, I'm kind of ADD when it comes to <laughs> army collecting. Or maybe, I, by the way I justify it is I like variety. It's just <laughs> spicy. Um, but so, yeah, this the situation that you find yourself in. Um, and it also, it, it comes down to weapon style. So let's talk about Belagarth, um, a polearm. Again, this idea of a, a of a, a long being able to stab them over there rather than people rushing up upon you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this type of encounter is going to determine how you can do. If they're standing over there, if you've got a shield line that's keeping your opponents at bay, and you can just kind of take your shots as you see fit, that's the type of encounter you want yep. as a spearman or a glaiveman. Um, yeah, that's what you're trying to seek yeah. out. You definitely don't want the shield rushes. That's, yeah, no. that's not the type of encounter you're looking for. So this idea of, of seeking the, fav- the the type of encounter that you're set up to do, either weapon-wise or unit-wise. Because, mm-hmm. again, like, like we were saying with uh, 40K, there's just some units that are not designed for melee. Right. And there's a lot of units that shouldn't be shooting. Even though they have shooting weapons, They just <laughs> it's not their strong suit. Right. should not rely on an orc shooting round. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you've got an orc army that shoots well, I'd love to see it. Prove me wrong. <laughs> but uh, I, I rely on my orc's ability to close quickly and then just mob. Um, yeah, I don't like that either. <laughs> that's the encounter I'm seeking. For sure. That's the encounter you're trying to, to hold off mm-hmm. at that point. Um, so, and then this last part, the, the ninth variable is something I'm calling mortal morale. And it comes from that last part, fight to the death. But it's, are your troops willing to stand their ground? Are they willing to fight to the death? And in, in real battle, this can make all the difference. We okay. saw in in uh, the battle of I'm going to kill this again, Legano. No, I think I got it that time. Um, I, don't ask me. <laughs> it was in one of our previous episodes. Ah. Um, at that particular battle, you, if you remember, the infantry stood their ground against a cavalry charge. They did not falter. They did not break, and that gave their cavalry time to wheel about and strike the opponent cavalry and and, and drive back the Holy Roman gotcha. Empire. That's what kind of ended up happening there. So their 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 courage in the face of death, this mortal morale, absolutely spared them defeat in that particular case. Um, again, we're going to be talking about one particular battle in the Civil War, but um, all throughout the Civil War, you see this this case played out in both ways: people breaking and kind of leading to a defeat, or people holding mm-hmm. their ground. For instance, the the battle of the the Little Big Top uh, during the Battle of Gettysburg on the Little Big Top, where Colonel Chamberlain right. was. Um, he absolutely, they, they held their ground there and that held that flank. <laughs> and so that was, a, that was a huge deal. So this, this fighting to the death, we absolutely see it playing out in, and it's just, it's not fleeing. It's the idea of, I would rather die here. Mm-hmm. I would rather like uh, defend my brothers or defend my sisters in the line than, than, than fall back. It's kind of what we're looking for here, this courage. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's when they get the phrase, like, this is the hill I'm going to die on. I think so. It might, it might be. Kind of curious. It might be. Yeah. I have to do some research on that. Yeah. It's interesting. I hold an eye on. Um, huh. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to look into that. Um, so in, in Belagarth, this, you obviously were going to respawn. So you would okay. think that people would not be that afraid of dying. But I see people <laughs> running all the time. All like, the time. And there's some, I'm not saying that there's not a tactical reposition. If I'm on the left flank and I 
honestly practically can see that we are going to cave, but if, if I can grab two or three other key players and shift to the right flank, that we can then use that to our advantage mm-hmm. and move back through and use the, those numbers, that's a tactical repositioning. Right. You know, you're, you're, you're trying to, to, you're falling back, but to win the battle. Strategic, what is it? Strategic restri- Strategic retreat? withdrawal? It's withdrawal, yeah. yeah that's, okay. Um, so th- that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about running away. We're talking about becoming intimidated by your opponent and mm-hmm. then turning and running. And this results in usually one thing, and that's being killed in the back yeah. while running. Yep. <laughs> so honestly, in Belagarth, the, the better of these options is to stand your ground mm-hmm. and fight. Like, honestly, just make them fight on your terms. And, and sometimes you can really pull something off. There's There's been yeah. times in Bell where I've been like, you know what, I'm... I'm dead. It's me versus the last five people on their team. Yep. They're all good fighters. Um, I'm just going to give a good showing of it. And then because I was focused on my fighting, I happened to beat all five yeah. of them. I wouldn't have gotten that if I had been running away. Yep. Or or I had a game at, on For Honor last night that ended the exact same way. I had a, <laughs> a moment with my Tian D character where it was me and the, the last three people of the other team. Both of our teams were breaking. I knew my team had broke. I didn't know theirs had broken. So I was just going out there to, you know, die with... Glory. <laughs> or something <laughs> happened to kill my my three opponents and won it for my team yeah if i had just sprinted around and waited for one of them to blindside me i i, I would not have gotten that victory yeah that's how i have the most fun in call of duty is right. i'm i'm out to die i know i'm gonna die every time and i just go and then, yeah it's so much fun that way but if you take it into a 40k context that's why i love about the necrons is because mm-hmm. death is not final they are fantastic with their and in 40k this 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 factor, this mortal morale, is is represented by a number, mm-hmm. your leadership score. Um, so, like you say, the Necrons yeah. are like ten across the yeah, board. Yeah, they started tens. Yeah, they, they don't care. Yeah, they, they don't. <laughs> they don't watch their buddies die all around them. And just be like, meh. Well, then not only that, but they they'll come back. It's fine. Right. Probably. Right, and they don't have souls anyway, so it doesn't yeah, really matter. So, yeah. So that there's that. That's an absolute, it's one of the few things you can absolutely measure in, in 40K would be this idea of this morale or mm-hmm. leadership um, being something that before somebody breaks, before they can mm-hmm. run away. In Bell, it's a bit more subtle, but it's still just as important. Yes. Um, so again, facing death, making sure that, because uh, again, you can't win. <laughs> you can't win if you've already given up. Yeah. Um, so you have to, even to the last, try to exploit every advantage you possibly have. Because uh, it's the only way to achieve victory. Especially on the real battlefield where it's life or death. And so it's got to be hard as a commander to oh, to yeah. commit other people's lives to that level. I think it takes a... a you have to be... You have to care about your troops enough to take care of them. Mm-hmm. But you have to be detached enough to commit them to battle. Mm-hmm. Which, which is something that people can die in. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, that's a hard balance to walk. I never, I was a, a specialist. That's as high as I got in the army. So right. I never had to command nothing. I, <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> I organized the library and was one of the Kings of the motor, motor pool. That was it. That was it. <laughs> and nobody died on my watch cause ain't hey, no bullets flying. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, the, uh, those are the nine variables, I think. Yeah. Uh, as, as we could extrapolate. Um, if you saw other nine variables there, uh, feel free to email me. I'd love to see your perspective on this. Cause again, this is not. You know, gospel. This is not uh, meant meant to be. These are what Sun Tzu meant by the nine. Very. <laughs> this is my guess. This is this is my educated guess. Um, having some fun with with, with it. So, um, so the next thing I want to talk about is the five advantages, which is also something he doesn't talk about. Um, 
but I'm wondering if maybe he was referencing right. one of the other five advantages. So I looked through the rest of the book and found other, uh, what would this be, quintuplets um, mm-hmm. of, of factors, advantages, things <laughs> that were organized <laughs> in fives that could kind of make sense here. And then I also thought of uh, five advantages that might, might suit wargaming specifically. Right. Um, so, yeah, the, the first one, uh, I, I look back, back in ep- uh, episode or chapter one, uh, he was talking about the five decisive factors. And if you recall, that was moral compass, which is to say that the, the leader is in alignment with their troops on where everybody's supposed to be. Their troops are willing to die for the leader because they believe in the cause. Everybody's on the same page. The moral, the, the leader is good and is doing good for their people. Moral compass. Mm-hmm. Uh, heaven, which was uh, the things you can't control. Climate. Um, uh, which way, which way the birds are flying, uh, like what, what, what type of weather is going on? Like heaven right. itself is like the, the indiscernible factors that are going on, gotcha. um, that can change terrain, obvious, right? what that means. It's the actual terrain that you're fighting on. And then the general themselves. And then lastly, regulation are the men unified in purpose? Do they know the right oh, commands? Okay. Does everybody know where everybody's supposed to be? Is there a good regulation to the army? Mm-hmm. If you say, I need you on the left flank, can they get to the left flank? Right. Is that infrastructure in place? So that's that was from the first chapter. And then in chapter three or, or episode three, he talks about the five keys to victory, which are knowing when to fight and when not to. Definitely a key yeah. to victory. <laughs> Uh, knowing what to do with superior and inferior numbers because you're not always going to have the best number. Again, this presents 40K, like we said in Mm -hmm. episode three, in terms of like if you're using a space marine force versus Tyranids. Right. The number differential is going to be huge. So you've got to know what to do with those numbers. Um, uh, Holding officers and men in united purpose. Again, he kind of touched on this with the moral compass and the regulation Mm -hmm. idea, but that everybody is on the same page. Everybody is moving towards that, that, that uh, discipline isn't too rough, that rewards aren't too much, mm-hmm. like that everything is, is, is everything that needs, is the way it needs to be. Um, careful planning to catch the enemy unprepared, which I, I just love the cadence of that sentence, but, <laughs> but again, that, that also important, mm-hmm. uh, key to victory. And then the last one is a skillful general given free reign by their ruler. And we're going to see all these factors at Chancellorsville yeah. when, we, when we get into that. Um, the next place, I found five of these, by the way. So when we get to the end of this, there are five different sections of these five advantages that I found because I like numbers. Um, there's the five factors of deployment that we talked about in episode four, chapter four. Um, and those were scoping, measurement, calculation, uh, balancing, and victory. And if you want more detail on that, you're going to have to go back and listen to chapter four because <laughs> there was a lot that went into that one. And then the last one that he talks about was in the last chapter, uh, chapter seven, which were the five masteries, which was mastery of the devious, mastery of the moral, morale, mastery of emotion, upper hand, and circumstance. So these are all things that we already covered um, that, that he might be referring to right. as these five advantages. It might just be a different way. Refer- it could be something that was lost from the text, um, mm-hmm. uh, something that was corrupted and, and, and just wasn't there anymore. Um, but for wargaming, I kind of extrapolated from these five adva- like key advantages for wargaming. Uh, and the first one is gear or list, which is what are you bringing? Uh, for Bellagrim, if you're bringing an old dag sword, which is to say blue foam on P- <laughs> PVC uh, put together with a little bit of dap. Or a lot. Or a lot of dap. 
it is not going to move as well as something that is on a fiberglass core that has been like sh- like a shaped foam that has been put over mm-hmm. it. Like they're just not going to move the same. They're not going to have the same finesse. They're not going to have the same control, balance, yeah, any of that stuff. Absolutely. Um, so the, the gear is huge. What, what kind of clothes are you wearing? Are you wearing clothes that are appropriate for it? I see people out there in all, like with, with garb that looks really cool, but I look at like the way it moves, and I'm like, that's not practical garb. Well, or you can overheat in a lot or you, of stuff, Yeah, too. you can yeah. overheat, too, if it's yeah. not the right fabrics. Mm-hmm. Linen. Linen people. It's a good thing. <laughs> um, so gear is huge. Gear, mm-hmm. gear is one of these advantages that can, can give you that leg up. In when you're when you're doing any sort of field fighting, whether it's SCA, whether it's dagger here, uh, amp guard, Bellagarth, whatever, mm-hmm. your gear plays a part in that. At least if it's a skill based game, if it's if it's a completely role based game where it's like a like a you know rock paper scissors decide who wins. Well, yeah, you know, for your, sure. Your gear can be whatever you want it to be, <laughs> but if your gear actually plays a part, mm-hmm. then it, it is absolutely yeah. The better gear is definitely key. On the Warhammer side of things, the list that you are bringing, what units do you have available to you, that is absolutely huge. If you yes. don't have any Lords of War, and your opponent does, I'm not saying that they are going to win, but... They're going to win. <laughs> well, not always. <laughs> uh, like, I, this is my last game with Kaji, I had a Lord of War, he didn't. He won. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He brought I... a lot of tanks. <laughs> Lords of War scare me. And and they're designed to be scary, mm-hmm. but but that's uh, it's, and so this this list advantage can be huge. And so having the the best units available to you, if you're a person who goes out and only gets what the meta uh, says is good, you're hindering yourself mm-hmm. because part of the part of the fun of this is experimenting and finding out what else works. If I would have just listened to what the meta was for Admech, I wouldn't have found some of my favorite stratagems and my right. favorite little tactics that I do with Admech because I went out and I got a bunch of the different units. I was like, okay, how do these guys work? Do I like them? Um, am I going to use them? Like my Sicarian infiltrators, I don't play them very often right. because they're really good against armies that have T3 infantry like Tau or Eldar or Imperial Guard. Right. They do really well. But against anything with T4 or higher, they're just spitting wads. Right. <laughs> and a little spit wads at them. So, like, <laughs> yeah, they're not nearly as effective. So they are, are something that, depending on the list I'm, or who I'm going against mm-hmm. or, where, or where I'm going to be using, I may or may not bring them. Well, Castland yeah. robots are always in my list. <laughs> um, and I, I noticed there was a huge change in um, in just the... The playability of the Necrons when I changed up because I bought some of the starter boxes and I was like, I have a lot of Necrons now. Right. But having a lot of them was not the same as having the good ones. So once I upgraded some of those and had more than what the starter kit mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. with, my my games got a lot more. It was harder to beat me. Right. I still got beat a lot. But well, you started experimenting outside the box too. Mm-hmm. That that was when you changed over from like, well, Necrons are supposed to be played this way, so yeah. I'm going to play them this way. To saying, you know what, I want to do a more fast paced mm-hmm. Necron. Yep. And everybody's like, what? You can't do that. And you're like, watch my Tomb Blades, <laughs> and, and and it's beautiful. Um, so yeah, that that's the list. Mm-hmm. Having having the flexibility to be able to bring a good list and know that you've got a good list. That's huge. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure Games Workshop is loving this because I'm telling you to go out and buy more models. But honestly, <laughs> having that flex... And for me, having seven armies has been huge too because I've been able to learn more about other armies so that when I go back and I play my AdMech, I'm like, okay, I know how a melee army thinks now because I play orcs. Yes. And I know what a melee army is trying to do. So now as AdMech, I can, I can counteract that. I can try mm-hmm. to outthink that. 
instead of just being like, well, I only play a shooting army, so I guess I kind of know what I, this It makes it really annoying do. to play against you. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the idea. Like, So you're, you're not going to learn those things as well unless you're, you're thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm. So whether that's buying absolutely everything available to your army, like Juniper has done, or buying a, like seven different armies and just like experimenting with that, whatever works for you to get this good list. So mm-hmm. the next thing in these wargaming advantages, number two, is experience. Again, this one's kind of self-explanatory. How experienced are you? How long have you been doing Warhammer? How long have you been doing Belagarth? Mm-hmm. Have you actually been putting in time and practice to getting better? This contributes to this idea mm-hmm. of, of experience in what you're doing. Don't have to spend too much time on that. That's <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty straightforward. <laughs> We've already <laughs> talked about it anyways. Uh, but more experience, or important than experience in my book, would be preparation. Which is the mm-hmm. third wargaming advantage is is this pre- idea of preparation because I've seen people who have been like you know I'm I'm a good fighter I haven't been fighting for the last year but I was a really good fighter for 16 years so I'm just going to enter this tournament and they go in against somebody who's maybe been fighting for three but this this new kid is just rocking it they hit the pell every mm-hmm. single day they're working out every single day they're watching YouTube videos every single day and so. When they're out there, suddenly they actually have an advantage in that yeah. preparation. And I honestly think that preparation is more important than experience. So even if you are experienced, you need to include this preparation portion. Mm-hmm. Preparation also includes hydration, also includes getting enough sleep, also includes getting enough to eat. Yes. Like, this is all part yep. of this idea of preparation. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. Which is which is universal across all the wargaming that we've talked about. Um, the fourth one is circumstance. Um, and this is the stuff that you can't necessarily control, but that is in place. So the circumstance would be the, the venue um, for your event or for your tournament. Uh, it would be the size of the field. It would be um, the weather that mm-hmm. particular day. Uh, these things are all kind of down to what the circumstances of why or what you're fighting. And even, even the, the game type, so even in Warhammer or mm-hmm. in uh, Belagarth, what the game type is, what your objectives are in the game. Is it just kill the opponent, or is there a lot of other things that need to happen right. for you to be able to win. These are important advantages to have. Um, if, if you've got a handle on these circumstances, you know how to react to mm-hmm. it. And the last one, and this is especially important for Warhammer, but also important for Bell, is just luck. <laughs> Dice <laughs> yeah. luck, you know. Did you happen to get first round? Well, if you've got two shooting armies, first round is important. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, if you've got a, an army that melee, or that uh, deep strikes, that first round yes. is important. Um, and, and then just every individual dice roll there on out because all dice are a dice roll. Some days mm-hmm. you just have a bad trend of dice luck and some days you have a really good trend of dice yeah. luck. And that's that's just what it is. That's I, not some, something that you can do anything about. It just, it's an advantage or it isn't. The, the superstition in, in 40K always amuses me though because like I have dice that I will only, they only get rolled for Necrons. And then, like, Kaji has dice that if he rolls a one, he won't roll that same dice again. He'll roll a different dice. You know, right. it's, it's funny. Right. But it, it, it makes a difference. It does. It does. So whatever whatever you need to do to feel like you're in charge of luck, mm-hmm. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> um, and then Belagarth, it works, too. Not so much um, in, like, unit battles because there's a bit more control over your teammates, but in, in fights where you don't, where they're just random teams, where you're put on a random team, the luck of the draw mm-hmm. of who you're with can make a huge difference. Yep. Whether that archer you got stuck with actually knows how to shoot or doesn't can make a huge <laughs> difference or, or any other position, you know? So, um, 
yeah, those are the five advantages that I think for wargaming yeah. would make the most sense. Um, and then real quick, before we talk about the Battle of Chancellorsville, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to discuss something that Sun Tzu actually did define in this <laughs> chapter, something that, that actually did get laid out, which was the five pitfalls that can befall a general. And he warns that if, if, if you see a, a general who is lost, you can look at one or more of these reasons as to why that occurred. Mm-hmm. And you can actually see all of these present at various stages in the battle that we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to try to make those connections as we go through. But uh, the first one that he talks about is reckless disregard for death will indeed result in death. And this one's, again, fairly straightforward. If you're not respecting the fact that your opponent is trying to kill you too. Right. And that they are capable of doing so, then you will likely just meet with an early end. Your round will be over quickly and you can go sit and have a drink or whatever. (laughs) Um, So this, in, in, in real battle, this would result, this would be moving cautiously. This is not sending troops out to just die for absolutely nothing. um, Or on, or on the half hint that something might be there. Mm -hmm. Um, Showing restraint in, in the committing of forces, two things Um, in Belagarth, it's, waiting for your opening, mm-hmm. you know, not stepping into your opponent's threat zone before it's time, before you have, you've got the proper defense set up, before you've got the right number of partners to be able to engage that mm-hmm. number of people you're going against. Like there's a lot of different ways that you can avoid a reckless disregard for your life <laughs> here. Um, and, and avoid that. And, and again, in 40 K it's a matter of not wasting your units. Um, you know, if I, if I know that I'm placing a, a, group of Skitari out in the open just to die and it's not necessarily drawing fire from something else they're just dying <laughs> right there's a points i'm just losing for no reason and every 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 person you lose on the battlefield every every soldier every unit those are that's that's it diminishes the whole yeah yeah it's less that you have to work with mm-hmm. later um and more than and in, in, a, in a realistic sense more that you have to deal with you're wounded all of a sudden right uh, that's that's a whole other consideration to deal with and then, but on this on the other side, the second pitfall he talks about is too much regard for life will result in capture. You have to be willing to commit. You have to be willing to to commit violence. You have to be willing to make sure that your soldiers know that their duty is to go forward and die. Um, I've seen people who have a treasured unit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's their absolute favorite unit. They just got it painted up, and it's almost like they baby it on the forty k board. <laughs> Are you talking about my tomb blades? No, you're 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 very good at using your tomb blades. Um, but I don't want them to die. <laughs> you, you don't want them to die, but you also want them to shoot people, and I've yes. seen you shoot people. Um, but yeah, this 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 they're supposed to be out there. They're supposed to be engaging, and so mm-hmm. too much regard for life will result in capture. The third one is a quick temper can be provoked into rash action. So remain calm. Do not allow yourself to be drawn out and out, but look for that in your opponent. One of my favorite things in poker is to wait for somebody to get rattled. Mm-hmm. And then they just start betting like crazy. And <laughs> you can really command the board if you keep your keep your head in the game. Uh, it happens in, in Belagarth and in uh, 40K, too. I know In 40K, I've definitely seen people who something doesn't go their way, something early game, uh, a little ruse or a plan that mm-hmm. they had go backfires on them, and then they get really bent out of shape. And then they can't do anything for the rest of the game. It's like they're just because they've been provoked. Yeah. Because suddenly they're just making these rash actions to make up for whatever. And uh, yeah. And there's an art to smack talking too. To to 
get people provoked, which is kind of... And I don't necessarily encourage smack talk on the show, but I do encourage mind games um, uh-huh. to try to draw your opponent out of their element, or even, even moving in such a way. Like, I, I like stuffing is a, 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 in, in Belagarth. Mm-hmm. When somebody's throwing a shot and you block it so hard that it causes them to, like, take a step back. We've stuffed the shot. Like, okay. like before it's even thrown. If you think about a shot being thrown, before it's past the apex, before it's past the the outward most part of the swing. Mm-hmm. If you can hit it before then, that's what I call stuffing. And it, it discourages people from throwing an additional shot because you blocked it, mm-hmm. like, in their mind, before they even finished throwing it. Sorry, I've got an alarm going off over here. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that can discourage them. Right. And, and it, but it can also discourage them into, or like, make them be rash. They can suddenly just start throwing more shots, being like, oh, you blocked that way, and just get into it. Well, and we've done it a lot in, in Belgarth as a unit to egg and on another unit, like, come on, you know, bring it on kind of thing. And you, you do, you provoke them, and, and then you stomp them into the mud. Right. <laughs> Especially if you can get them to string out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the nicest. <laughs> and this works in 40k too, like we were saying. So, mm-hmm. so uh, try not to be the person with a quick temper, but the person who is capitalizing on their mm-hmm. opponent's quick temper. Uh, the fourth one is a misplaced sense of honor brings only shame. I, we've ripped on Belagarth Knights a couple of times in this show. I love you guys. I, the, those <laughs> of you who, who take your dedication to service seriously and are good members of the community, I hope you take this as the lighthearted joking that it is. Those of you who aren't, you know who you are. <laughs> um, but this, this whole concept of like knights not stabbing other knights or squires in the back in an actual field right. fight. Like I, I know there, there was a couple of, like when I first started being an apprentice, <clears throat> it wasn't required of me by Valis by any means, mm-hmm. but I, I was kind of talked into practicing this by somebody who spoke very eloquently. Mm-hmm. And so I was on the field and there was a couple of times where I spared the lives of knights or squires just to, at the end of the match, be outnumbered by exactly that yeah. many knights and squires and get stomped into the mud. So I'm sitting there being like, what lesson am I learning? Except that this is dumb mm-hmm. <laughs> and you should, you should take your victory where you can find it. Um, it's war. Yeah. It's war. We're simulating war. Um, and so if you see a path to victory, you take it. Yeah. Horror uh, movies are a perfect example of that. Like don't stop hitting it. Yeah. They always stop hitting it, and they always end up getting chased by the serial killer or the clown or whatever. I think don't go into the creepy house on a dare in the first place would be a, a good starting point. But then we wouldn't have a movie in the film yeah, at all. Yeah, spicy life. Uh, so, <laughs> a little too spicy, but yeah. Too spicy. That's, that's a bit beyond the cayenne pepper. Um, so yeah, this this idea, this, this too much honor brings only shame. Like, if you see your opponent make a mistake and you're like, man, I don't want to capitalize on that, you are in the wrong line of work. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is a competition. I will um, totally stab you in the back. Again, we, we encourage sportsmanship. We encourage good play. But we also encourage trying to find victory in all mm-hmm. things. And, and so does Sun Tzu right here. So don't don't let a, misplaced, a misplaced sense of honor lead you into a, a place of defeat. No, you drop your sword and I'm totally stabbing you. And Absolutely. I would, ex- I would expect you. We got two, you got two monsters here. Her husband's a war master. Mm-hmm. I'm a war master. We, we, this is, this is philosophy. It's philosophy. <laughs> and the last one, the last pitfall is an over solicitude for the men just causes needless trouble and anxiety. Um, and this, this kind of ties back to that other idea of too much regard for life will result in capture. But this is the, for the commander themselves. If you're too concerned with the suffering of your soldiers, you're not going to be able to commit them to what needs to be done without additional suffering on yourself, Burnside. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, the idea is to... 
to care for them. Obviously, if, if your men aren't getting the food they need, if they're being mistreated, if they're being worked too hard, they're not going to perform to their top advantage. So you need to care for your troops. And, and if, if you're not doing well by them, you're going to have higher desertion rates. You're going to have people not performing well on the field. Mm -hmm. That's not good. You don't want that either. But to worry too much about it is to worry about the whole point of this is to commit to the death. Right. You know, if I'm sitting there being like, I, I, actually, I've seen this in units before in Bellegarth where somebody will have a significant other who's in the unit and they will oh. like position them not in the front of the line. Like they may be a very significant force to be in the front of the mm -hmm. line, but because they favor the person, they will position them elsewhere to keep them quote unquote out of danger. Sumitai would totally make me cannon fodder. <laughs> I'm glad to know he lives up to his chain, um, <laughs> because that's that's the war master way. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but but this might hobble, hobble the team if mm -hmm. somebody were to be practicing this, or they may, or favoring somebody over someone else. Uh, this over solicitude. The whole point of it is to be soldiers. Right. If you're in charge, you need to have that in mind. Um, whether they're your prized model or or one of your prized unit members, mm -hmm. their job is to fight and to kill. And potentially die so that you can win. <laughs> um, so there's the five pitfalls that you can see the falling generals. I think that's uh, that's good for the meat and potatoes. What do you think? I think so. All right. Well, let's I mean, talk about yeah. Chancellorsville real quick. I've enjoyed <laughs> talking to you so much today that we're going to run over just a <laughs> little bit. But I, I'm sure Kristen will forgive me. Love you, Kristen. Um, <laughs> so Chancellorsville took place on the well. It took place between the first and the fourth of May in 1863. American Civil War, uh, just down the river, the Rappah Rappahannock, from Fredericksburg. Uh, so this is positioned time-wise between Fredericksburg and Gettysburg. So okay. it's kind of that middle interim ground. Uh, Hooker has just been made uh, General of the Potomac, or General of the Army of the Potomac, which is for the North. Uh, Lee, of course, is still in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia, <laughs> uh, which was the fighting for the South. Now, Hooker inherited a a largely static military condition. Uh, Lee had won quite handily at the Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh -huh. And so he had a, a very good uh, location on his side of the Rappahannock in Fredericksburg that he could defend from. A lot of good earthworks um, and cannon placements already set up. Uh, so he felt pretty good about that. Um, meanwhile, on the other side of the river was the Union Army trying to find a way to maneuver around Lee's force and get between him and Richmond. Because again, when you're thinking about real war, remember that logistics played a huge part. A lot of the maneuvers that you see generals and units doing in real war are to try to disrupt supply lines, mm -hmm, try to disrupt absolutely. communications. Because if you can get between that army and their base of operations, e.g. Richmond in this particular mm -hmm. case, that means they have to fight you right there because they cannot allow you to yeah. get to Richmond, obviously. So, um, they, they, I'm going to, I want to talk a little bit about Hooker before we go into more of the specifics of this battle, because I think he's an, an interesting character in history. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, feel free to stop me at any point. If you have questions, uh, oftentimes our listeners will have questions if a okay. guest has questions. So, uh, yeah, just let me know and okay. we can, we can talk about it. <laughs> so Hooker was a notably vain and overconfident man in a time known for vain and overconfident <laughs> men. I mean, just look at the beards and mustaches. That's all you need to the, know about this. <laughs> yeah, he had to be a big one, bushy. <laughs> um, uh, so he he was he was also intemperate. So he was he was very vain. He was very overconfident about himself. He was known for kind of sleeping about. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but when you're trying to maintain a, a certain presence in front of your men, uh, to be seen as immoral in this way isn't necessarily a good thing. Uh, a fun fact 
a lot of people attribute the name for a prostitute, hooker, mm-hmm. to this general. That is not the case. Oh, really? Uh, the term actually comes from an area in New York known as the Hook, uh, where prostitutes really? frequented. I totally thought it was this guy. But his nature... Like but this this myth about it springing up mm-hmm. because of his name was because of his nature. I mean, the reason people believe that is because if it was true, it's wholly deserved. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> but, but he was also very attractive for his time. He was six foot, which was fairly tall mm-hmm. uh, for this this time period. Um, good looking, well built. Uh, he had a way with the women, so like he had no reason to not think right. of himself as awesome. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I, I found that irony to be weird. Uh, so he. This 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 ego of his was made worse when Lincoln promoted him. Now the the kind of the circumstances of his promotion I found humorous as well. He he will say that the reason he was promoted was because in 1861 he met with Lincoln and said, "Well, it's you know it's a nice little rebellion that you're having over here. I wish you luck with it. But if I had been there during the Battle of Manassas instead of those other generals, you would have done much better." And that Lincoln offered to promote him on the spot. That's what Hooker says. Now, again, we're talking about a very vain and overconfident man. So whether or not that's true, probably not. Um, <laughs> but he, he worked under Burnside for the longest time. Burnside was the last general who was in charge of Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. Now, Burnside was the exact opposite of Hooker. Burnside second-guessed himself to a fault. If, you, if there's one trait that is absolutely lethal in a commander, it is indecision. Mm-hmm. Any decision is better than no decision at all. Because if you're just sitting there in the middle being like, oh, 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 oh gosh, what to do? You're being shot at. You're being shot at the whole yeah. time. you got to do something. Yeah. Really anything <laughs> at that point. Um, <laughs> and so he, he was heavily critical of Burnside. Like he, and I am too. Like anytime you hear me talk about Burnside, I'm no fan of Burnside uh, necessarily. But the level of disrespect that Hooker was showing to his commander was, was extreme. It's so extreme, in fact, that Burnside called him out and said, you have undermined me at every turn. You criticize me unfairly. You make it incredibly difficult for me to run this army because nobody wants to take me seriously. Oh. And dismissed him. Dismissed him outright. Stripped him of his rank and said, you are, you are no longer a member of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, the next day, when Burnside stepped down from his position, mm-hmm. Lincoln elevated Hooker. <laughs> well. <laughs> so who, who now now thinks he's even cooler right. than he thought before because, you know, he's, he's maneuvered. So he was a very ambitious man. He was, he was all about the intrigue, all about the scandal. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you want a good biography, read yourself a biography on Hooker. It'll be well <laughs> worth it. Um, so this dismissal, of course, was quashed, like I said, by Lincoln promoting him at that point. Um, and... And this was because throughout uh, 1862, he had made a very good showing. Uh, where he had been in charge on the battlefields, typically things went well. Mm-hmm. His his brash nature kind of endeared him to some of his men. And so like they, they, they called him Fighting Joe. The papers called him oh, really? Fighting Joe Hooker. He, didn't, he, he claimed he did not like the name. That was probably false modesty, right. knowing, <laughs> knowing <laughs> Hooker. But, um, but yeah, he, he, he was... He was well-liked amongst, not by his fellow officers, who all thought of him as a, a conniving kind of dude, mm-hmm. but the men typically liked him because he was boisterous, he was extroverted, like, right. you know, he was one of those kind of guys. Um, but the army that he inherited had been suffering. This was a particularly hard winter, and both sides suffered. There was up to about a, a 10% desertion rate at one oh, point, which is massive. Yeah. There's a yeah. huge number of people saying, I don't want to play this game no more. <laughs> um, so... This is also a long time, though. Originally, 
uh, Hooker wanted to move basically right away. Once the snows were thawed and everything was fine, because he didn't want to repeat the mud march mm-hmm. of Fredericksburg. Again, talking about mud <laughs> being a huge issue. Right. The guys coming out of Fredericksburg had a big issue with the mud march, and so he did not want to repeat that. So initially, he planned to move upriver of the Rappahannock and try to flank Lee. This was the plan that Lee was anticipating, right. and so he felt quite confident. April, however, proved extremely rainy. The rivers were all very swollen, so the Rappahannock was not crossable. So this left Hooker with more time to think and more time to plan, and he decided that that wasn't necessarily the best idea, and the plan he came up with was actually not a bad one. Right. Uh, again, he, he, was, he was kind of a... Uh, I'm trying to think of a non-swear word to call the guy, but... <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time with that. Um, he, he wasn't great. But in this particular case, he had a decent plan. And the idea was that he was going to leave a small force across the river of, uh, from Fredericksburg to make Lee think that he was still there. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Sedgwick was going to move around and get in position to attack Fredericksburg proper, uh, the flanking maneuver. While this was happening, Hooker's intention was to move around even further behind and get between Lee and Richmond. Right, okay. So at this point, Lee would have had to quit his positions, and they would have been pinned between Sedgwick and Hooker. And Hooker, right. Nice little pincher maneuver, mm-hmm. and it's exactly the way Hooker wanted it. So Lee actually didn't know about this at first. Lee was still totally anticipating the first plan, just coming across and doing that right. one flanky maneuver. Um, and so when he when he got wind of this, he, he didn't have very much time to react. Uh, this was a, a, a battle of surprises for both sides, mm-hmm. because Hooker had fooled Lee and, and had amassed half of his army on his left flank before Lee knew he was there. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. That's okay. a lot of guys. But <laughs> Lee then turned around and fooled Hooker by rapidly redeploying uh, from Fredericksburg. He left a token f- force in, in Fredericksburg and was like, okay, you guys need to make a big show of being here. Right. And then he went to engage Hooker, um, but he left like a sixth of his army behind. So he kind of did the same thing that, that Hooker did. A little okay. bit. So okay. they were kind of playing the same game here, trying to trick one another. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the numbers here, to, to to bring it into perspective, was about two to one. There was, a, there was anywhere between 120,000 to 150,000 Union soldiers okay. and about half that many Confederates. Okay. But Lee seemed to excel in those odds. That <laughs> Like every time <laughs> those odds are presented to Lee, he just seemed to mm-hmm. defy them. So he, he did so again here. Um and it started, so Hooker was coming through, and he starts to lose his nerve. Like, his troops start to see it. Like, they're, they're pushing through, they're making good time, and suddenly Hooker starts to, he's like, we're no more advancing. It was, I think this was on, ah, bless. It was the, I think it was the 29th of April, or the 30th, whichever one came before the first. <laughs> but, like, he, he basically says, we're going to hold up here, and we're going to start building up trench works mm-hmm. and his army's like we got like hours of daylight right. left like why are we holding up here and so they were they were thinking again hooker's losing his nerve for whatever reason because he's pushing through trying to engage lee but lee is being squirrely as mm-hmm. lee does then out of nowhere jackson hits because you know stonewall that's how <laughs> we do and and this kind of catches hooker and and puts him on the defensive so he sets lines along that angle so so think about perpendicular to where jackson hits mm-hmm. he sets up his lines expecting lee to follow suit that everything's going to be coming from that direction he's got him right where he wants him he right. said that i've got lee right where i want him there's no reason to go out trying to find him well over on the side there's a flank just wide open right it's wide open um and, and people commented on it. And Meade, who actually would be the person put in command after this battle, um, was like, um, don't you think we should worry about this hole <laughs> in our defenses? And he's like, no, I've got, I've got Lee right where I want him. There, there's no issues here. <sighs> so 
Again, rapidly redeploying through the night, Jackson, now who has been given basically autonomy over his section, Lee says, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I trust you. You've been fighting with me for several years now. You're a good commander. You go do what you need to do. So Jackson rapidly redeploys with AP Hill, going around that left side. And and the next day, rolls them up. This is a term that we use in in Belagarth law, which is rolling the line. But they hit them at daybreak when people are just starting to get out of their beds. And the way it was described was that at first they thought that there was 100,000 deer standing through the forest. Oh, jeez. Because suddenly the forest was just moving. And then suddenly that rebel yell starts coming up. Mm. And people were just scared out of their minds. And so this this, this whole flank just collapses in on itself. And now Jackson is in the position of being between... Hooker and Washington. Right. <laughs> so, so Hooker needs to get out of here, uh, and, and 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 he doesn't he doesn't encourage his men to fight. He, he all he can think about is getting out with his army in one piece. Mm-hmm. He completely loses any desire to take the fight to Lee, and begins to fall back. So you see a lot of these errors being made here. He has a quick temper, and he mm-hmm. and he believes himself to be awesome. So he he pushes in and he makes a lot of rash actions. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Allies thing actually came into place here too. Sedgwick was supposed to be there to sandwich Lee, and he wasn't. Sedgwick, who had been reliable for the whole rest of the... Like, the, the reason he was given this job was because he had been really reliable oh, for the entire war, and then suddenly he was a day late attacking Fredericksburg. Like, <laughs> Why was he late? Don't know. Just was? Don't know. Oh, uh, it, it could have been river conditions, could have been right. marching conditions, could have been... I don't know. I, I mean, I, it, <sighs> And so it, it was one of those issues um, mm-hmm. where, where, again, Hooker was anticipating playing with about twice as many soldiers yeah. and he didn't end up doing so. Yeah, that hurts. It does. It does. So allies not being in place and not doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a misplaced <laughs> sense of honor or a misplaced sense of, of faith in himself. Mm-hmm. Like he thought, well, I'm just going to be the best. I'm going to bring Lee to battle. And then when Lee didn't play easily, he was like, he, he, like I said, people assumed he was drunk. He was accused at the time of being drunk. Oh, no. And there's no evidence to support that. Right. It, it literally just points to the fact that he seems to have stalled out right. in his own head. Um but something unfortunate happened. You're speaking of allies. Something unfor- Because it was a very good victory for Lee, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Except for one important factor. Uh, one of the evenings, uh, toward the end of the battle, obviously, when Jackson was out scouting the lines himself. He, he didn't trust or, or he didn't want to rely on, his, on the other scouts. He wanted to go out and see the mm-hmm. enemy's pickets himself. He rides out. He comes back. And some trigger-happy North Carolinians shoot him shoot Stonewall Jackson, one of their own commanders. And they didn't kill him outright. He was struck several times. The really bad one was it struck him in the wrist. It severed an artery in the wrist and completely shattered it. And so over the next several days, Mm -hmm. he slowly died in excruciating pain. Um, And that was a huge blow. Mm-hmm. Because the battle was basically won at that point. He had already done these massive maneuvers. He had already outsmarted Hooker uh, for the most part. And so Hooker was withdrawing by the time that this became really apparent to Lee that something was a huge issue. Um, but so the Army of Northern Virginia lost a very capable commander, mm-hmm. all from the, very, from, from the time he earned his moniker at Manassas, Stonewall Jackson. Right. He had been a, an invaluable asset, not just to the Army, but to Lee himself. So which one of those... Is it, would that be a pitfall? Which one of those pitfalls would you attribute to that? I would I would say a misplaced sense of honor brings only shame. Because because he trusted his own eyes more than his mm-hmm. men's eyes and he found he thought that uh, that it was it was one of those situations that he he could kind of get around because right. it was him. 
Um, and, and unfortunately, his ally, it hadn't been communicated to his allies that he was going to be coming right. back on that particular road. They thought he was a spy, and they shot him, uh, which, is, which is horribly unfortunate mm-hmm. because, uh, I mean, right. not in the long term because the right. South lost the war, but like, uh, uh, I mean, in this particular case, with I, was, I find it ironically amusing that, that it was his own people that took him down. His, you own, know? his own guys. North couldn't do it. They couldn't seem to. Yeah. The bullets would not touch yeah. Jackson otherwise. <laughs> um, so this, again, this goes back to those nine variables we talked about with the Allies. But um, I would also think that, uh, again, this over-solicitude for the men, he cared very much for the men. He preferred mm-hmm. to do a lot of the work himself and not make men do it, but that he was supposed to be in command. Right. He was supposed mm-hmm. to be reserved and far back so that he was protected. Mm-hmm. Um, but you saw this a lot in the Civil War, guys who led from the front and definitely got shot right (laughs) it was a common fairly common thing for the guys who did get shot um but yeah so it left not only the uh the army of northern virginia hobbled in some way losing a commander but also Mm -hmm. lee himself uh who suffered a a devastating defeat at gettysburg uh just a few months later because he had not just lost a capable commander he'd lost i was lost a dear friend Mm -hmm. and and a fellow man of faith him and jackson both approached the war and the same idea they both were were heavily fortified in their idea that they were doing what was right by God, right. that God w- would protect them. And so this kind of shattered that, I, yeah. would, I would think, in Lee's eyes. That would be a hard thing to, to continue believing when you lose somebody like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, again, you see these, these factors at play. These, these, uh, he was reckless in a lot of ways. Um, he had a, a bit of a misplaced sense of honor and an over-solicitude mm-hmm. for the people underneath him. Got a little excited. Even just the know? failed communication. Even just the mm-hmm. failed communications. Uh, so as Sun Tzu said, if you understand the nine variables, these five advantages and these five pitfalls, you're going to be in a better... He said you're never going to suffer defeat. That <laughs> I'm not going to make that claim. <laughs> but uh, I think I think that's... Uh, that's what we have to say on the nine variables. Mm-hmm. What, did you, you have anything else to say, Juniper? No, I think that's a fantastic example. Well, I, I yeah. appreciate you being here. Yeah, um, absolutely. Join us next week when hopefully Oni will be back and we'll be going on the march. Um, but until then, this is uh, Juniper and Malark signing off.